A warm welcome back to Expanding Eyes, the podcast, where we have been conducting our own odyssey through Homer's odyssey. And by this point, we have arrived in book six. And I must admit that this is maybe my favorite, certainly one of my favorite books of one of my favorite works of literature. Yeah, I don't know what kind of a nerd you have to be to have a favorite book of an epic, but I love book six. I look forward every time to teaching it or lecturing about it. And there's a very simple non-intellectual reason uh, for it. It is high comedy. It is laugh out loud funny. And when I teach it, I've always emphasized to students, we have this conditioning that we are supposed to be in some sort of a high heroic mood when we read epics, but that doesn't fit much of the Odyssey whatsoever, and you miss so much. No, you're supposed to laugh at this. They did, I'm sure. And we do if we're taking it in the right spirit. And the comedy, or the greater part of it at any rate, turns around the daughter of the king and queen of the Phaeacians. Odysseus, after a 20-day ordeal out at sea, including three days caught in a hurricane in which he loses everything that he has, even the clothes off his back ripped off by the power of the storm. He crawls up naked as the day he was born, utterly exhausted on a shore, has no idea where he is, and only has the strength to hide himself because he does not know whether the people of this land will be friendly or not. Hide himself under an olive bush and fall into exhausted unconsciousness. Meanwhile, the goddess Athena, guardian angel, anachronistically speaking, of Odysseus, at least when he's on his way back home, goes to his rescue by organizing a rescue party surreptitiously as usual, does not appear as her own self directly because the gods almost never do this, appears instead in disguise within the dream of the daughter Nausicaa, the princess, the daughter of uh, Queen Arete and King Alcinous. And disguises herself within Nausicaa's dream as a best girlfriend. We quickly get the idea, ages are never told of anyone in the Odyssey, but we definitely have this generational contrast that I've spoken of more than once before, the older generation and the younger generation. We've had the Telemachia about Telemachus versus the suitors who are young men his age versus the older generation. Well, Nausicaa is of the younger generation and in fact probably, at least 
by the way she behaves, even younger than someone like Telemachus. Students, when I ask in class, usually guess that she's around maybe 15, 16, according to a kind of behavior time chart that we all have about what teenage mentality is like. I have to say there were social scientists in the 20th century who wrote books proving or attempting to prove that adolescence was actually a modern invention, a product of a modern economy, keeping young adults off the labor market and sequestering them. But whatever may be the truth of that, the psychology here is pure teenage girl of a certain phase of growing up. And it's the phase, usually the women in my classes nail it exactly, when we are boy crazy, uh, we are boy minded. And Athena plays on that in the dream. She disguises herself as Nausicaa's best girlfriend, suggests that in the morning they go down to do, do the laundry because wedding chests must brim by evening, maidenhood must end, in Robert Fitzgerald's translation. Nausicaa's laundry probably has a t-shirt that reads that in there, maidenhood must end. We are set for marriage, we've got our eyes peeled for anybody eligible, and that's about to happen, courtesy of Athena. So Nausicaa wakes up, and it's a subliminal suggestion that Athena has planted. She has no idea, thinks this is her own notion, and he, she goes to her dad, the king, and admittedly, Robert Fitzgerald's translation accentuates the comedy and modernizes the way people talk. But in his translation, she says to her father, my dear papa, could you not send the mule cart around for me? The gig with pretty wheels, we want the good car. I must take all our things and get them washed at the river pools. Our linen is all soiled. You should wear fresh lit clothing going to council. And remember your five sons at home. Two are married, but we still have three bachelor sprigs. They will have none but laundered clothes each time they go to the dancing. See what I must think of. Oh, it's all up to me, the woman. Okay. Dad knows something is up. He's a wise king. We see this in other ways, but not all wisdom is political. He also knows teenage girls, and he knows that there has not been a teenage girl since the Bronze Age that has ever volunteered to do the laundry. What are you really up to? And the text continues, not all the humor is Robert Fitzgerald's. Homer is smiling. She had no word to say of her own wedding, though her keen father saw her blush and says, yeah, yeah, take the keys. And down she goes with her girlfriends. They do the laundry and then they break for lunch and after lunch play a game of ball and they're kicking the ball around, and it goes 
out of bounds off into the bushes and goes into the olive bush where Odysseus is lying and bumps him in the nose and wakes him up. And he wakes up and thinks, what in the world? <laughs> and he looks outside the bush and there is a whole bevy of teenage girls out there. All right, he is totally stuck in a dilemma. He is here, naked, inside an olive bush, surrounded by a whole group of teenage girls that he knows are gonna go shrieking and eking the minute he would try to come out with no clothes on. What is he going to do? But he can't stay there because he desperately needs help. He has to try to get their aid. So he breaks off a branch of the olive and comes out wearing it in front of these girls. I mean, just right there, just the situation before anybody says anything is pure humor. And a little bit more than that because there's also characterization at the same time. He comes out and again in the Fitzgerald translation, like a mountain lion, rain-drenched, wind-buffeted, but in his might at ease. At ease. He's cool. He's in like this ultimately embarrassing male situation. It's like a bad dream where you're naked. He's wearing a bush and he's got these girls that he has to try to befriend, but he is polytropos. Not all strategies are in war. And he can fight wars. He can fight very well, as we'll see with the suitors. But life has other battles, and you also have to be able to charm a teenage girl. And he knows exactly instinctively what to do. He's never seen Nausicaa in his life, but he knows girls of that age, and he applies psychology. He throws himself at her knees and begins, first of all, treating her like an adult, which is very important to her. And second of all, flattering the hell out of her, giving her a male line of compliments so over the top that if Nausicaa were even a couple of years older, she'd probably see right through because they are really, they're really excessive. <laughs> but she buys it. She is totally flattered. Mistress, please, are you divine or mortal? Are you one of those who dwell in the wide heaven and so forth and so on? But one man's destiny is more than blessed. He who prevails and takes you as his bride. Never have I laid eyes on equal beauty in man or woman. I am hushed indeed. And it's like, okay, guy, tone it down. <laughs> but it works. He does not know anything about her. He just makes a few shrewd calculations about what might be the preoccupations of a teenage girl of that culture, and he manipulates her in a friendly way immediately. All the girls, of course, 
do the, you know, here is a naked middle-aged guy who came out of the bushes. This is exactly what your mom warned you about time and time again. Oh my God. So they run eking away. But Nausicaa's a princess. She's got a rep to maintain. So her knees are knocking, and it says all of this. I'm not even adding in. But she decides she has to show some dignity and calls out to her friends, oh, stay with me. Does the sight of a man scare you? Well, yeah. <laughs> but at any rate, she befriends him, he befriends her. Yes, he manipulates her a bit, but he's desperate. He does not, clearly from the text, have some sort of dirty old man designs on her, although, as we'll quickly see, it would not have been regarded that way in this culture. We know that because 10 minutes after he's in the palace, Dad offers Nausicaa in marriage to Odysseus. So this was appropriate enough, but Odysseus is not interested. He is not trying to seduce or even flirt with her, except enough <laughs> to get some help as he needs. And so she grants him hospitality, the ancient rite of hospitality. And it just so happens, you can hear the plot creaking like the wheels of the wagon they've brought, but it just so happens very conveniently that they have a whole cart full of laundry, including some guy clothes. So he's going to take a bath and clean up and put on some nice new clothes. And he says, as the comedy keep, keeps, keeps on, maids, now keep away a little. Let me wash the brand from my own back. It is long since my anointing. I take no bath, however, where you can see me naked before young girls with pretty braids. Giggle, giggle, giggle. You can just hear them thinking that this is very humorous. And it is. So he gets cleaned up. He gets clean laundry. And he is going to go. They are out at the shore. He is going to go into town and into the palace and is given directions how to do that by Nausicaa. But Nausicaa draws short. She does something which is, in fact, a sort of social faux pas on her part, and she will get briefly in trouble with her dad for doing so. What she does right at this moment would be regarded as rude and really moderately disgraceful to a guest. She says, no, you can't go in with me. I'll, tell, I'll give you directions uh, how to get there. Second Street to your left, you can't miss it, and so forth. But I cannot be seen with you going in. Why? Because they are going to pass the dock workers at the dockyard. In other words, we just keep translating in so easily into contemporary terms. Yeah, the construction workers, you, you know, I've never heard of feminism. From these fellows, I will have no salty talk, no gossip later. I can just hear them 
saying, she goes on, oh, who's the handsome stranger trailing Nausicaa? Where did she find him? Will he be her husband? She cannot stand being teased. More touchy adolescent behavior on her part. So she should bring him in. He should be under her personal protection, but she tells him, I can't afford to do that. But here are the directions, and as book six ends, she gives him one more instruction that really startles us. She says, go into the central hall, and there will be my dad. Go past him. Cast yourself before my mother. Embrace her knees. On mother's feeling, much depends. If she looks on you kindly, you'll see your friends and your father's country. Go to the woman. Go to the queen. We are about, in books seven and eight, to witness a startling moment insofar as gender relations and the power of women in the Odyssey are concerned because Queen Arete, uniquely in Homer, perhaps uniquely in ancient literature, has real power, not just domestic power, not just romantic power, but real political power. She is co-equal ruler with her husband, Alcinous, and maybe even first among equals, as Nausicaa's advice suggests. She is, as I say, unique in this egalitarian portrayal in not just Homer, but in ancient literature. And the whole island of the Phaeacians, the whole society is unique as well. Arete is only the most dramatic example of what is almost, it's possibly an anachronistic term to use in Homer, but almost utopian. There is something ideal and idealized about the Phaeacians in big ways and small. Even we find in a reference in book seven as we now pass over uh, into books seven and eight in the Phaeacian episode, even the trees bloom perpetually. Fruit never fails upon these trees. Winter and summertime they bore throughout the year. This kind of thing is quasi-paradisal or like a fairy tale in later Western society. And the social system is also ideal as well. It is an example on a spectrum of societies. I have mentioned earlier, and I always tell students when I teach the Odyssey, we gather evidence as we go through this long narrative, and we're not ready to sum up and look at the results of that evidence, perhaps until close to the end. But we gather the evidence 
in various thematic categories, one of which is model societies. Good models, bad models. And of the good models, the Feakian society is the ultimate good example. So good that it is perhaps, it represents, as utopias do, something better, more perfect, than a real society could actually attain to. But there are still uses to utopias. Yes, maybe too good to be true, but something to shoot for anyway. Odysseus is going to go back home and he's going to get back the kingship of his very troubled, chaotic island and have to rebuild his society from the ground up. And I would like to have us keep in mind that in his head as he does that, he will have the model of Phaeacian society perhaps more than he would be able to put into practice given the limitations of the time and the limitations of the people and their conditioning of that time, but still a kind of a shining model. It's an enchanting episode. So in Odysseus goes, in book seven, into the town in the center of which is the palace, which is also at the same time the family home, and uh, he asks for directions from a little girl, more humor, clearly intentional in my opinion. The little girl is actually yet another disguise of the goddess Athena, and uh, she gives him directions, says you can't miss it, and then abruptly disappears it like a puff of smoke. This time it really is the translator, Robert Fitzgerald, deliberately phrasing things in a charming way. But I just love it when Athena turns and runs away and disappears. She's referred to in her disguise as a little girl as the awesome one in pigtails, which always makes me laugh right out loud. So he gets his directions and in he goes. We're given, as he is making his way to the palace and then through the central room of the palace, we're given the background of Arete and Kinuos. And if you work it out in the margins of your book according to a family tree, you realize that they are uncle and niece, more things that would be unusual if not abnormal in a society of that time. But the stresses on Arete, it says when she walks the town, the people murmur and gaze as though she were a goddess. As though she were a goddess. Some scholars speculate, and I will tell you more later about this when we get to the Circe episode, where it is even more true and more prominent some scholars speculate that details of the Odyssey sometimes might be a kind of vestigial cultural memory of the whole group of societies that preceded 
the Homeric poems. The pre-patriarchal societies, which are sometimes referred to by the archaeologists as the goddess cultures, because found in town after town of these cultures are hundreds upon hundreds of almost exclusively female figurines, probably or at least quite possibly of religious significance, either one goddess in many forms or many goddesses, but a female-dominated religious pantheon, and other features which are, as I say, pre-patriarchal, extraordinarily fascinating even though a good deal of it is speculative and you have to be careful about what books you read. Some of the more popularizing books speculate without sufficient guardedness. Nevertheless, fascinating possibilities more later. And Arete is one place where it just seemed to suggest a dim memory of a time when some women had real power, and she does. Odysseus goes into the central hall. The palaces of that time were constructed in a way that some scholars parallel with the construction of medieval castles where there was a huge central hall with all sorts of things going on, the basic life of the people and the palace taking place in a large central room with various other rooms off along the walls, bedrooms, storage rooms, and so forth. And that large central room was called the Megaron. And in the center of the Megaron is the hearth, symbolically and literally the center. And this is where Odysseus goes. He moves towards the fire and he sits down in the ashes, which strikes us as a rather odd thing to do when you're in somebody's house, but it is clearly a gesture of supplication, someone coming from the outside, standing in the hearth, which represents the protected, warm place of the home. And he is noticed, no one stirred or spoke until an old man named Echinios, versed in the laws and manners of old time, finally speaks and says something like, um, King, there's somebody sitting in the fireplace. And they approach Odysseus and grant him hospitality. Immediately, this is a tribute to them, but it is also the tradition of that time, the tradition of hospitality to strangers, so different from our own protective society. So they take him in, and they do not even ask his name. This was part of the custom that you don't check for ID. They don't even ask his name. You're obviously down and out and needy. We take you in. However, Queen Arete has sharp eyes. She notices something. Wait a minute. 
I know those labels. Friend, I for one have certain questions for you. Uh, who are you and who has given you this clothing? In other words, you're wearing our laundry. How did that happen? And the great tactician, when he's referred to that way in an epic which is entirely in peacetime, it once again amplifies the message that not all tactics are in war. And a good deal of the tactics during peacetime are social tactics involving knowing the right thing to say. Okay, yes. I met your daughter down by the shore and she had the laundry and I got this laundry from her. And Alkinoas, her dad, is somewhat upset. My friend, my child's good judgment failed in this. Not to have brought you in her company home. Once you approached her, you became her charge, he explicitly says. She was rude. To this, Odysseus tactfully replied, Sir, don't blame the princess. She did tell me to follow her, but I, I would not. I felt abashed or feared the sight would ruffle or offend you, and so forth. No commentary from the narrator. But we know that's not true. We were there. We saw the... He's telling a little white lie, a little fib. Why? To protect Nausicaa. He sees that she's in some hot water and that it's kind of his fault. And he's being a nice guy. He takes the hit for her. That's cool. And Alkinoas is impressed enough that he immediately offers marriage. You could be my son-in-law before book seven is even over. Odysseus, by the time he leaves, will have cautiously and gracefully sidestepped that offer. But it does get across to us how things worked. You know, she is not too young. She may be a teenager, but in terms of that culture, she's, young, she's old enough to be married. And therefore, what goes on is not the kind of Me Too scandal that it would be in our culture. And anyway, Odysseus has conducted himself politely and tactfully. And the Phaeacians not only show him hospitality, they, sh they throw a whole party. And these people, among their many other utopian features, one feature of Utopia is they know how to party. This party takes up the entirety of Book 8 of the epic. And we see various aspects of it. Before we leave book seven, however, let me say just a thing or two, and we will go on next time to the party next week. But I have to, perhaps a, a two or three minutes to talk about the, the social setup, not only of the Phaeacians, but of the societies of the time. It would have included Ithaca and Lacedaemon and Pylos and the societies that we've seen there was no nuclear family. There was a family, of course, related by blood, parents, children, and so forth. But 
that family was at the center of a webwork of people known collectively as an ecos, an ecos unit. In Greek, we get our word economics from that word ecos. And the ecos unit included the family, but it also included other groups of people. It included servants and slaves. It included the male warriors known as therapontes in Greek, usually translated so often the only analogies the translators have are to the Middle Ages, at, referred to as retainers, as they would have been in feudalism, those who have a bond of loyalty to the central warrior. There would have been also two other groups. There would have been a group known as the Thetis, who were unattached laborers. And they were not the same as slaves. Slaves belonged to the household. The Thetis did not. Migrant laborer is the closest that we could come. And finally, one more group, a fascinating group that we will learn a little more about later, the Demiurgoi, literally translated workers for the people. Those who had skills that were vital and almost quasi-magical beyond the abilities of most people, two groups of these demiurgoi. One, the smiths, who knew how to work metal and make all of the weapons and the household items. And two, the poets. And we're about to get our second and extended look at a Homeric-style bard in the figure of Demodocus the bard, who sings three times during the festivities of Book 8. And we will take up there next time we join the party. Thanks for being here.